welcome to Anna Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Anna, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Tamar, an emergency relief response volunteer who is currently on the Thai Myanmar border. Tamar herself has lived in refugee camps for half of her lifetime because of armed conflict. As a child, she lost her village and was forced to flee to the Thai Myanmar border. She has remained in the area and continued to volunteer and offer support in a number of different ways over the years. Since the peace talks between the Myanmar government and the Karani National Progressive Party, the KNPP, began in 2021, Tamar has been involved in the peace process as a technical support person to the KNPP's Peace Negotiation Committee. Currently, she is working with the Coordination Team for Emergency Relief Karani in providing emergency relief to IDPs and civilians in Kaya State who are affected by the recent military coup in Myanmar. Tamar gives a heartbreaking account of the humanitarian situation on the ground and pleads with the world to not forget about Myanmar. Let's start the conversation. Hi, Tamir. Hello, yes, I'm Tamir. I miss you both. Yes, thank you for organizing this, and I'm very excited to <laughs> the discussion. So right now, Tamir, where are you? Are you outside of Myanmar, or are you still inside? I am in Thai borders, actually in Thai side, in Mehao Song. And do you want to tell us just a little bit about your background, maybe some information leading up to before and then your work now? Okay, okay, sure, sure. I was born in border areas, in Taipma border areas. And when I was born, after all years, my village, there was fighting near my village and with this place. And for many years, uh, we have been moved from one place to another place. And uh, sometimes we cross border to come to Thailand and when the fight is uh, stopped, we went back to our village and we lived like that for many years. And until 1995, in 1995, the Korean armed group, KNDP, uh, had a ceasefire agreement with their slot at the time, Gafunda slot. But only after three months, the, the ceasefire broke down and there was very heavy fightings. And all the village in eastern part of San Luis, because we live in eastern part of Sangwe and all the village more than hundreds were displayed and we wiped off all of the maps. And after that, our people, our people uh, became refugee. We came to uh, live in refugee camp. And since then, the people could not return and it's become a Korean refugee camp until today. And now some people already recentered in other countries like US, uh, Finland and uh, Australia. New Zealand and the recent many countries, but stay there are around 10,000 people stay are in Korean refugee camp right now. So I'm working with these communities and uh, now I'm working with a team called Coordination Team for Emergency Relief. Paradise is Karani, or you can, but it's short term CTR, CTR. So the, uh, our team was formed or before we to respond to the Imperial crisis at that time. At the time, our purpose was to help the CDM people and some IDP who flee to the border areas. 
and we are working to like fuel funds and to uh, provide them with some support. But in May, there was fightings between the SEC armies and the PDF in Ukraine state. There was big fightings and a lot of people were displaced. And we also focused our work to inside and we send some of our, like, our help, uh, our support to inside Ukraine uh, to the IDP's people. So what we are doing now is basically to provide humanitarian assistance to uh, the IDPs in Ukraine state. Yeah. Ukraine, you can also call Korea state, officially call Korea state. <laughs> so you, you never left. You, you know, did you have opportunities to leave and, or, or did you choose to stay over the years? And how come you're still there now? Actually, in uh, 2012, uh, the KNDP, the ethnic armed group, have a ceasefire with the government, the Myanmar government, the second time. So they have a ceasefire, and at the time, we could go back to Myanmar. We could go back, I mean, not to live permanently, but we were back time to time, and we also went there to do some work. But just after 10 years, uh, uh, this year before we first, uh, the army took over the country again, so... Or our dream shatters and now we could not go back to credit state anymore. Since February, how have things changed? You're supporting a lot more people maybe than you were previously. Are there more people coming to the border areas? In, in border areas, there is only like less than one, uh, 1,000 people. The IDPs came to the borders. Most are staying inside Korean state. Uh, because it is difficult for people to come to uh, the border side as it's very far. And as I said, uh, because there is no more village in eastern part of Southway, which is close to the borders. So most the population are in the western parts of Southway. So it's very difficult for people to come to Kairuma border. That's why uh, only 1,000 1, people but the situations, uh, the humanitarian crisis is stay very serious. Even the fightings happened in May 21st. The, the fightings broke out between the SAC armies, SAC and the Korean PDF and for one month and more than 100,000 people were displaced and people run to different directions in Korean state. Some went to very deep jungle and some stay near to the cities, but there is no like official IDP camps and there is no one to protest the IDPs. But the IDPs, uh, even now we have both party announced like temporary ceasefire. We don't know uh, how long it will last, but they announced temporary ceasefire. But the people are still afraid to go back to the village. They don't trust the situations and they, they are afraid because the uh, military troops are staying mobilized in that area and they're still operating. So some people, uh, they go back to the village only night time to plan, you know, to plant paddies because this like a rainy seasons and they have to, they have to grow, they have to farm. If not, you know, in the next six months or after years, we will face starvation. So people are still trying to go back to the farm, to farming, but they don't uh, go back to live in, in the village. And people from the village, they are trying to go to the cities because they feel city might be like a safer place for them. But in the same way, people in the cities, they are trying to uh, go and live in, in the village because they think city might. So people have no more place to run, you know. And at night time, there is often like a 
got fights around the areas and people always have to, you know, go to bed with the fears at nighttime. And this, this is still happening until now, uh, until today. Wow. And what are the biggest problems that you face trying to help people at the moment? What, what is the biggest problem? Is it getting supplies to people, getting supplies, funding? What's the biggest obstacle? Yes, there are many challenges to deliver helps to the people. As I, I mentioned, because there is no like an official IDP camps and first the people need is uh, like security protections. They want some group to protect them and that's why the community there, they are trying to give gates for the international communities to come and like set up um, an official IDP camp so that people can come together and live, you know, stay in that IDP camp and, and we want international community like to help to put pressure on the XAC, like to allow for the free passage of humanitarian aid. Now it's very difficult because all the road led to Korean states was blocked and not many like a machine a car can deliver food or other medicine supplies. So things are very restricted for the people uh, to bring food and food supplies and uh, medicine supplies to our state. So I think that's the main challenge. And uh, like some IDPs, they, they live in very like ghetto place. And some IDPs who come, who live in a big groups, some aid can reach them, but some people, they, they go to stay in a very deep jungle and it is hard for people to get to deliver aid to right now. So. That's why not many places they haven't got any support yet. Are you seeing any impact of COVID yet on the border? Has it reached? Because we're obviously seeing really horrific images in Yangon and Mandalay at the moment where people are yes. queuing for oxygen. Has that hit you guys yet or, or not yet? In the border areas, we don't have a COVID kit yet. But inside Kareni, the last news yesterday is I think around 140 case and four people died so far from COVID. Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, that there was fighting and also the COVID, the, the COVID also treated like our people. So people, they have to afraid of both, you know, they're afraid of the fightings and they're also afraid of uh, COVID. So everything's just, you know, just out of control there. Yeah. And they don't have uh, like protection guilt to, to protect themselves from the COVID and there is no any medical supplies. So in village or in the border area, if COVID happened, if we have a COVID case at this level, it would be very difficult because we don't have oxygen and we don't have enough medical supplies. So I assume in these areas, these border areas, you have the ethnic armed groups who are trying to protect the people and hold on to these areas. But then the more people from the cities that come to these areas to escape they're bringing more trouble with them, essentially, I assume, because the, the military then become more aggressive in that area. Is there more of a risk or a worry with more and more people from the city coming there? Yes, the place we have like a IDP temporary shelters in the um, group control areas. And it is not really a, a safe place because it's just a few distance from Myanmar army post like a few miles from the Nyama post. So there's no safety, as well as there's no safety for the IDPs. And 
And also the people cannot cross into Thailand right now. The IDPs cannot cross into Thailand. The Thai government doesn't allow people to cross because there is no fighting in the border area yet. So they are still restricted. We, we also have to worry for, you know, clash. If fighting happens in the border areas, this will be like people will have to run again, you know, people, the IDP people will have to run to a new place again. As you said, we have some people from CDMs. They, they also came to stay in the uncontrolled areas. And the armed group, they are trying to help them, to protect them. But they also need a lot of support because for the long run, you know, we don't know how long they, they have to live here, but for the long run, they also need a lot of support. How do you get water just on a day-to-day process? Like, how is there access to clean water? <clears throat> of course, no. In border areas and in the IDPs area, it's sacred suggests no clean water. Yeah, and... Like from here, we try to look for funds that will support our water situations because it is very dangerous also because of the COVID. If like a lot of disease can transmit through water, you know, so we try to like improve the water sanitation in, in the border area. But in, inside Kuala State, as I saw many pictures, like people have to drink the water. The, the color is like coffee, you know, <laughs> it's very dirty, but they have no choice and they have to use that water because why that's water they just use that water. So this water is also the main problem for the IDP people. I've also read just on social media, not official news, that stories of the military going into people's farms and, and taking the rice and stealing the rice from people. Is something that, that is happening that you're experiencing as well? Yeah, they broke into some house and they take things that, that they can take. And the things like rice and food that they can take, they just destroy it, you know, they just cut off the, the rice sack and they just, you know, destroy everything. So we don't know what made them to do like that, you know, they just don't want people to starve, you know, to, to go hungry. So they, they did too many house in Kimoso after the fightings and people went back to their house and they see, like, they saw like all everything's in their house, just, you know, just, throw away, uh, just throw and destroy and you know, even all the rice bag, you know, we cut and then everything just, you know, go into wins, yeah. So when someone gets sick and when you know that there's a health emergency, what can you do? What is the process that you go through in terms of trying to help that person? For inside trainees, people depend on mobile health teams. Some are CDM doctor and and nuts, they also travel to jungle and to help the people. And there are outside church clinics, uh, humanitarian clinic, uh, like organized by some church and uh, also any health organization. They also go to the IPs area to help the people. From our borders uh, area here, we have a very small like clinic. And then we have some medic, you know, back, backpack medic and station there. But there's a major case, I think it's also very difficult, you know, to, to deal with the operation. It's also very risky for the people, you know. But for the business healthcare, there are still some people who, who take risks, you know, to, to try to help the people there. What about entering into Thailand? Is that border enforced? Are there Thai soldiers on the border? How does it, how do they prevent the refugees from? Moving? Yeah, they're very strict. 
They're very strict uh, because of COVID case in Thailand. The COVID case is increasing this week. The, the Thai authorities is very strict with border, and uh, they set some like petrol the border army to go and petrol around the uh, border site, and they don't allow people like from the IDP camp to cross uh, to the camps. Because in the border areas, uh, the IDP camp is very close to the refugee camp here, but the people are not allowed to come into the refugee camps. So they just have to stay in the other side of the border. When you're inside that border, you're at higher risk when you're within Myanmar because the military can't go into to Thailand and get you essentially or bomb you uh, in the same way. So, is there a real fear when you're when you're stuck inside Myanmar? Yeah, even the refugee camp in Thailand is not safe. I remember in I think it's 1997 there were attack on the refugee camps in canoe refugee camps and two people were killed at the time. So. Even a refugee camp, this is Thai soil, it's not safe at all. So that's why the IDP camps wish in, in Myanmar side, there's no safety for them. There's no safety for them. The military, the armies, uh, is very close. So they can come anytime, you know, but we just hope that they would come to harm our people there. And in terms of the safety of young women and girls in those camps, I mean, is there a real risk of trafficking or kidnap or things like that? Do you hear accounts of that happening in those border areas? Here, there is not a case like that yet. Maybe because mostly those who come are a woman, children and elderly. The IDP get the majority are women, children at the least. And most men stay left in, in current state or stay left in the village. But in our area, we have a woman organization, KNWO, Pre-National Women Organization, which is helping the children and women there. So they, in terms of CBB protection, they are also monitoring their situations and they're also providing like concentration for them. So for IDP camp, I'm here in the border, so I'm not worried for that, but, but for the IDPs inside Korean state, yeah, there can be a high risk of CBB against the women, especially from the armies, because the army came to some HP camps and they forced people to go back to the village, you know, they forced people to go back and sometimes they came to the IDP's areas to take away their properties. And so the women there, wherever they heard that the Myanmar armies came in, they just have to run, they run to other place, they run to the next place because they're afraid. They are afraid of them. And as we have heard many news of, uh, like TB violence committed by the Tamadol, that's why our women, they are also afraid of these things. And for you yourself, Tamar, like you've been there for years. I mean, you went in and out yourself as a child running whenever fighting broke out. Did things ever improve? In all of this time, even under the civilian government, it doesn't sound to me like things ever really got any better there. Yeah. In Korean state, we have experienced uh, the civil war for more than 70 years now, but not many people know about Korean because we, our state is very small, very tiny, and we have only few populations. So we are kind of forgetting people, but we have experienced the war for more than 70 years, 23 years. And uh, people like myself, they have experience of this kind of placement and human rights violations. And things that does improve so much. But 
for the past 10 years after this fight was played between the Korean armed groups and the Myanmar government, a give up hopes for people, you know, because there was no more fighting in the past year and people didn't hear the sort of girl fight and people can go to farms, you know, can go to farms without have to worry about fighting. And there is some infrastructure development take place in our state and that's why people, you know, they really want peace in, in our lands. But this just what destroyed in only in a few months, you know, the, the infrastructures and all the hopes of people, you know, the developments, everything just destroyed by the military groups, yeah. Do you feel this time that there is a difference in the way people are responding? Like to us, obviously we haven't experienced what you've experienced, so I would be interested to know if you see a difference. But it seems to us like the Myanmar people are united in a way they've never been before. There seems to be a coming together of groups and an understanding of what the ethnic people have been through, more so than there's ever been before. Are we naive or do you feel that that is true or are you seeing any signs of that difference this time? Yes, before at least the majority of Burmese people, they just saw the ethnic armed group as a rebel, you know, as a rebel, as a rebel who's tried to, you know, who tried to destroy the country. But after this time, the coups, people in Myanmar, especially the majority Burmese people, permanent people, they understand, you know, why the ethnic people are fighting against uh, the Lamadol for so many years because of the human violations that they commit to our peoples and also because of the oppressions against the ethnic people, that's why ethnic are trying to fight for this right. And the Burmans, majority Burmans, they also have this kind of experience after the coup and the, the brutal crackdown, all the protesters and many people were killed, especially the young people. So because of this, this time that we really have to approve the military coup, if not, the military group, they can come back to power anytime and they can kill our people, you know, without any reason. This is now or never, you know, we will never be able to uproot the military. So that's why they, they came to unite. Our people came to unite together and also they want to work with the ethnic armed groups. And as you have heard, many PDF group armed forms in different parts of Burma, in ethnic areas and also in Burma majority areas. Many PDF group unfold because what the, the military regime did to our people are so painful, you know, and so people cannot bear that anymore. And even they don't believe in arms, arms struggles, but there's no other choice for the young people, you know, because when they go to our protest, they were brutally cracked out. So at least now people are very united and I never seen people unite like this before. And I think this. Now people are very united and there can be like movements we, we go on, but we don't know what result we get, but uh, people are t- determined to fight, to fight against the military groups here. We saw this week in the news that previously the military in Minang Lang had hired a lobbyist group and they've resigned because they can't get paid because sanctions are working. Sanctions are cutting off the military's money. But also there is the worry with sanctions that it will impact humanitarian aid. But it's it sounds to me 
that people like you in Thailand and those ethnic armed groups can get supplies to people. There is ways of getting food and aid and medicine in without legitimizing the military. Would that be a fair thing to assume, that it can be done without giving money or aid to the military or working with the military? Yes, we have experience of deliver cross-border aids, especially credit state. We have been in war for many years and we depend a lot on cross-border aid. And the local CBO, CSO, or the cross-border CBO, CSO, they, they have worked in this way for many years. We have backpack teams, credit backpacks, who did a very good job. You know, they try to go to the area when there's no home hospital and they work there and they have been doing like this for more than two decades. And like this, you can do a lot if people are willing to support cross-border aid. And we can deliver especially the medicines, the medicines and cash, but I think for like things that is a bit like food and supply, it is a bit difficult because all the road unlocked. As I said, we cannot use a truck or car anymore. All the road in the border to Kurdistan are blocked. So we have to use people to carry things. And there's also a challenge, but our people, you know, they try to find different ways to be able to deliver human assistance to, to IDPs inside. But yeah, that's why I want to also advocate to the international donor to get more cross-border aid because uh, the civil CSO inside credit, they also need help. There is no cash flow that can come direct from Yangona. So for now, cross-border aid is the only way that can reach, that can really reach to the people inside. Have you noticed a decrease in international involvement since the coup in terms of just international volunteers and NGOs? Were they a presence before the coup? Are they there now or has that never been the case? The IMGO and also UN agency, they also tried to go to like Pruny State. When the fighting happened, they tried to go to the Pruny State, but the army doesn't allow them, doesn't allow them to go. Like the ICRC, they also requested the armies to allow them to go to Kurdistan, like to monitor, to help the people there, but they were rejected. So it's very hard, also difficult for them, you know, to get permissions because they are INGO, they cannot go if the armistice allows. So and this is also difficult for them, but they also try to help in the way that they can. They also try to send things like medical supplies and other supplies through different way and they also try to support local community organizations. As I said, all, all roads are blocked, so I think it's also difficult for them to deliver things. And I assume then there's no vaccines for COVID or anything being offered or being suggested to these camps. I mean, that to me sounds like a sensible thing to do to deliver vaccines to the most vulnerable people in these camps. Is that even a suggestion that that could happen? Yeah, uh, at this many group, especially the EH or ethnic health organization, they are trying to advocate for what health organizations and other international donors to provide vaccines through the borders, you know, through the border and to EHO. But still, I, I haven't heard that any group get vaccine yet. So if they can provide vaccines through cross-border, I think the people, our people, especially the ethnic health organization, they, they have capacity, you know, to deliver this to the people in need. They just need training. They just need a training and technical help, you know, technical assistance. And I, I'm sure they will be able to do it. And that's why we, we also want 
you helps to lobbies or to advocate to the world health organizations and to national or to to things for our people there and to allow for this you know to allow for the force that seem to deliver through a cross border and what's life like right now for people in the camps or even who are not quite in a camp but they're just scattered and not in their homes and they're just staying where they can are, are they in makeshift shelters We've got rain. What's their day like? I'm trying to imagine what they must be going through. Yeah, it's, it's a makeshift shelter, like make of bamboo and, you know, top leaves. <laughs> Things that we can find in the jungle because you said, you know, to make a shelter for them. It's some areas very crowded, like in border areas. Didn't expect people will arrive that soon, you know, but the fight broke out and hundreds of people arrived and there's no enough a shelter for them. So people have to get whatever they can find in that area and just use tapoli taps and to make our shelter for them. And as I said, the water sanitation is also a challenge. If a disease broke out, spread in that area, it would be very dangerous for the people. You know, there is no like a proper clinic yet and they cannot go to Thailand to get medical uh, help. So that's why we also worried about these water sanitation things. So I imagine if one person brings COVID into one of those areas, everyone, based on how many people are in one area together without being able to social distance, do they have masks or anything like that? Is that something? Yeah, there are some IMGO who try to provide some protection gills to the IDPs in the border. Yeah, we have some masks and gels and some medical supply for the people there. But this People inside need more now because I don't see any IDPs wear masks inside Kremlin. But here in the border, there are some group, some INGO who is helping with this. And for children, I assume that school, it was already out for many people anyway, but yeah. I'm, people do have school in these camps. But right now, is, is that happening or is it possible? Yeah, I, I, this has been two years, right? In the school closed and the children cannot go to school. Some IDP camp, uh, they try to teach the children other the trees or other like a makeshift camps. I remember when I was young, we also have to sit under the tree and learn uh, when we, we run in the jungle. So just bring back my memory when I see the picture of, you know, children uh, learning other trees or other attacks. So the education of children is just stopped for two years now. And I, I think the parents are also worried. And that's why in the border areas at BCAM, we have tried to set up a school, a school for the children. There is now more than 100, around uh, 200 children who are in the age of going to school. So we try to set up our school for them. But we still need a lot of beauty materials and also teaching materials to help the children there. It must be very traumatic as a child to witness what you witness. <laughs> And I imagine today, like having to run, flee your home, in, out, in, out, you know, going home, having to go again. Is there any support for that in these camps or for people, even when they leave? Are people getting support for trauma, for mental health? Because I imagine that is having a, a huge impact on children. No, we don't have any trouble or counseling. You know, I don't, we don't have anything like that. Yeah. But now, as I said, in the IDP camp in the border, like the KW, the woman organization, they also try to give counseling to the women and children there, but it's not enough, no? We also need our staff, but their staff also need 
trainings and we have to have expertise, people with expertise to come to get trained. And our people, they have lack of knowledge about health, you know. I don't think they know about this, how this can harm their mental well-being. Even I myself, I don't know much about mental health issues. So this kind of topic is very used to us. That's why I think we need a lot of NGO who is willing, who want to help for the mental health issue. Yeah. Are you there with your family? Yes, I'm with my family. Yeah. Are your parents there? Do you have children? Yes, with my, my mom. Yeah, yeah with your mom. mom. And how is your mom coping with this? Is this just normal for her? Has she lived through these kind of terrible times before? How is, how is she coping? She has experienced so many fightings for so many years. And even she can be traumatized also, but she believes that this is the face of our people that we you know is happened to us. And we have to be able to live with them. You know, we, we have to be able to survive in these situations and we have to be strong. Our people, we just know we have to be strong because the situation cannot get worse than this. We, we already passed this kind of experience and this cannot get worse than this. We just think in that way, you know, I think my mom also did that way. Yeah. Does it just become so normal? Like fighting breaks out, we run, we try to survive, some people die, some of us make it and then we go back. Yeah, yeah. Does that become normalized that you start to think that this yeah. is a normal way of life and, and then you adjust yeah. to it? I mean, it's yeah, 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 yeah. You know, as I said, 20 years, we never experienced peace, peace of stability in our state. And there was fighting and we just say, oh, there was fighting and people displaced, but we don't know what, what is peace, you know. <laughs> our society never experienced real peace. So, yeah. And I'm assuming because obviously from talking to you, you've got good English and you've obviously managed to get a good education, mm-hmm. even in your situation. Yeah. Were you ever tempted to just leave, to go to another country or maybe go into Thailand, take a job? Were you ever tempted to do that or what made you stay where you are helping? Yeah, I'm a bit lucky that I have the opportunities to assess to higher education, but you know, I have to get higher education. I also have to experience so many challenges. And, you know, if you don't strive or if you don't try, you will get a highest education. So I think that the education that I get, I also want to help my, my communities. That's why I can try, you know, to go to other countries, live there. The things that I try so hard for, you know, the education that I try so hard, it will not be that useful in other countries. But... Our people here, my community here, they need my help and I think I can apply. But the knowledge that I have to help my people, that is why I tend to live here. I tend to work for my community here. You're so strong. I'm just really like so, (laughs) I'm so in awe of your strength. I mean, like how you've lived through all that and that it's happening now and you're still going and, and your only goal is to just help others. It's really admirable. It really is. You're doing yeah, we have to work. help. We have to depend on each other, you know, because if not, you know, we cannot rely on anyone, so we have to rely on one another. In Burma, it is not the only time that people go through the situation like this. Before 1988, people also demonstrate and people went out the street to demonstrate and a lot of people killed. And after a few years, the news just got silent. And again, in 2007, when there was a civil revolution, it also this happened, and all people were killed, and the news just covered, you know, for a few months, and it's also silence now. And this time also, 
it's happened again. And I want to ask the world not to forget our people and to continue to help us and like to listen to our people and, and also to focus on what's happening in Myanmar. So I don't want the world to forget us like before. And as I said, the people in Myanmar are not so united, you know, are so united, but we cannot do it alone. We also want other countries to help us, you know, to help us in the way that they can. So uh, we can change, we can bring change to our country. So that's why I just say a few words here. Yeah, and I actually think you make a really good point there that this has happened before and it almost looked each time like the people were going to win and then it stopped and it cracked down. But I mean, we're hoping social media this time, more people have access to it. There is more Burmese around the world who will not stay silent. You know, we understand that people inside the country may have to find a different approach because of the risks to their lives. But us out on the outside, we can use our voices and we can keep talking about it, keep telling people about it. And I do agree with you. While it has to happen in Myanmar, there's a lot people outside can do too. You know, a lot. Things like recognizing the national unity government instead of the military, cross-border aid, making sure that people can survive and we don't have an unnecessary (coughs) amount of death. And the news media have a responsibility to report on this and to keep the world's focus on it. What we're seeing this week in terms of the, the number of people we know who are begging for oxygen because their family members are dying who don't need to die and wouldn't die in another country. And it's not making the news here. I mean, if you follow certain journalists or you're following certain stories, you will come across it. I don't see it on any news stations or any TV or in any newspapers here. But social media, it is there. And if people follow what's happening in Myanmar, they follow those hashtags, they can keep seeing what's going on. And we just need to keep people's focus on it. But what you're doing is amazing. It really is. And it is going to make the difference. You know, you're impacting the lives of so many people. And I'm sure you're inspiring them to to want to help just like you. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.